This is the Gomaluku podcast. Right. Yeah, so like the, the um the story of Mexico was I, I was invited to the the um Continental Summit of Indigenous Communications, all right, loosely translated. Um to and that was in 2013, no, 2014. Yeah. Yeah, either way. So I, w- I was invited and I was super excited. You know? So, um, oh, let's go to Mexico. It's not, it wasn't in Mexico City. It was in Tlahoy, Toltepec. Um, and I memorized that name um, because I had to. So I hopped on a, so, th- and I, w- I got this, received this invitation and what, um, yeah received this invitation I was like oh yeah sure why not so I said yes and didn't hear for a very long time didn't hear anything about from the organizers so I was like yeah ain't gonna happen and right after that meeting I had to be in New York um for the um third committee meeting so that was somewhere in September yeah so probably in 2013 yeah yeah um so did not anticipate, expect an email of, oh, yeah, by the way, we booked your ticket. Um, so I'm like, hold, hold on. I have to be in New York. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I can't, um, I'm okay. I can do the round trip. I can do Amsterdam, Mexico City, back, and then to New York. I can do that physically. But, like, um, I would lose a lot of time. So, so, to, to, so I asked him, oh, could you change it from Amsterdam? Mexico City to New York and then through Amsterdam. Sure, we'll do that. So I, w- I was, I was like, all right, all right, then let's do this then. Uh, so one week in, um, or a week and a half in Mexico City. So hopped on a plane, lay over in Detroit, which was also cool because it was Motown. I'm a, I'm a Motown fan. Um, so um, did a did a short layover over there and then flew flew to Mexico City um but you know look you're when that that there's always a point when you do something and you you have that uh uh-oh moment so I arrived in uh, Mexico City um uh go through customs okay pick up your bags okay and it was already by the time it was like midnight midnight in Mexico City and so I walked out and that was an uh-oh moment because there was no one, nobody there. No one with a, with a sign of, of my name or whatever. And uh, there, there, was, there was no one. And I was like, oh shit, I'm in trouble now. Um, so I, was, I waited for like, all right, 10 minutes. Maybe, maybe that person is late. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. It didn't, I, didn't, I didn't start to panic until like 45 minutes in like one hour like all right it's 1 a.m still no one there what to do and then i realized yeah but the meeting isn't in mexico city they booked you until mexico city but the meeting isn't in mexico city it's in Tlahuitotepec. so i open up my laptop obviously there's no wi-fi um so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll wait for it. I'm for, so for sorry. It. There's something at the door. Can you just? That's okay. Yeah. 
Man, this is a crazy story. Can't believe. Yeah, I don't know if I've told it. Um, no, I don't think so. Anyway, and we'll just wait. It's funny. Never had this before. So if you're listening and watching, all right. Well, what was it in the mail, man? What did you get the, your Amazon? This is the great joy of working from home uh, consistently. That was my groceries being delivered. What? They're here yeah. now, so we're all good. Oh, did, oh okay. Well, did, did you, um, it's like, like fresh groceries, um, produce, veggies. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, milk, vegetables, bread, etc. Um, and it gets dropped off on a Friday morning, um, usually yeah. Friday afternoon, which is why I thought we'd be okay, but it came a bit early. <laughs> and is, is that is that like grocery for the entire week? Or is yeah. it just, okay. Yeah, most, most of what will get us through the week. Um, and then lo- adding little bits when we want to go for a walk outside the house and escape computer screens. Right, right. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little bit iffy about um and maybe that's because i live on top of a grocery store um which is also like terribly dangerous um but yeah i'm always iffy about like um yeah i'm ordering groceries like like fresh produce and and vegetables and but if it's made if so I'm always interested. And I'm like, is, is, is it working for you? Is it? It's, it's okay. The the main thing is you've got to be willing to steward if it's not quite right. So if, hmm. you know, if your tomatoes are coming in a little bit bruised, you just got to make tomato sauce instead of eating fresh. Um, but if you're willing to do that, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, cool. Now you you, you made my me believe in um in online groceries and delivered to the door like this much better so that that's that that's that that's that's, <laughs> that's good um so you were saying you were saying no wi-fi in the airport oh yeah there yeah you're, no, and your laptop is is your only tool um yeah and so and then you realize like there were a lot of gaps in the whole story as in like um you don't have any, any um uh, um phone number um all right, all right by the way um when you're traveling, this is your contact person. Nothing. Um, so that's mistake number, I don't know, 50 uh, on, on that whole trip. Um, mistake number one was uh, um, not asking, like, the basics. Uh, like, um, where's it, well, no, I, I didn't know where it was going to be, but uh, assuming that it would be um, in a place where we were, right, at the EU or, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a meeting place. Anyway, I'll get to that in a bit. So um, the what happened was, so here, here, this is me panicking, not knowing any Spanish and trying to find on the laptop like, or any phone number, email. So I emailed any email address that was in that thread of emails of uh, all right hey please get to uh mexico no i was looking for a phone number no phone number um meanwhile my my phone was about to die um you know at insult to injury anyway so so i sat i remember i sat there 
with my laptop on my lap. And I'm wondering, all right, it's 1 a.m. now. I'm outside of the airport and there's nothing else to do. So I, I, I don't know what to do. And I need to get to a hotel. But how do you get to a hotel? What kind of, which hotel? And is, is this the end of it? Like, or, and I was already planning my return trip. Like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm going to go back because this, this isn't, this isn't working out. And all of a sudden behind me, there was a lady. When I heard a voice. I heard a voice that was said, Alta, Alta. So I was like, yeah, probably Spanish, a Spanish word or something. So, so like, and then the lady, and then, that voice came closer and then all, all of a sudden it's in front of me pointed at me alta that lady recognized me from the indigenous meeting held in alta 2013 earlier that uh earlier that year and you can't not comprehend the how relieved i was of people or someone that would recognize me and did was uh did speak spanish luckily um but didn't know english so so we had to communicate with, with like like yeah pretty, almost like sign language like trying trying to communicate like all right how do we she, she was in the same boat as i was she but she flew in um from um i think yeah from uh, nicaragua and uh yeah so, so he, both of us so she called some people and and they were like, yeah, we'll put you in the Ramada hotel. All right. So went to a taxi and um, we drove to the Ramada hotel. Arrived at the, at the hotel. Um, we thought that they, um, that they had booked two hotel rooms. They only booked one. So she called the, these people again, like, all right. Hey guys, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but um, we only just met. We just met. We're two persons, and usually this works in some kind of setting, but not in this setting. And um, they said, "Oh, sorry, yeah, we thought we thought Ghazali was a female." Um, and yeah, and you're the organizer of the or the meeting, right? Right. Anyway, so um, yeah, took a little bit of time. Meanwhile, it's three a.m. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. in the morning, and they said, um, "Yeah, all right. You want two rooms? You go, go ahead, go get some sleep." Oh yeah. By the way, um, to get from Mexico City to Tlahoy Toltepec, um, we have to, to drive you eight hours. So please be ready by 6 a.m. Um, so the car can pick you up. So that wasn't three hours. I was like, "Oh, this is." All right, so so I had to like flip my my narrative, like my mindset. All right, this is an adventure. Just ride the wave and and don't don't worry too much about it. Um, it it is it is what it is. All right, so, um, three a.m. Got it to my hotel room. Put on like four or five alarms because I knew I was I was exhausted. Um, so um, six a.m. A little bit before, before six, woke up, packed my bags. Oh, I didn't even unpack. I just threw on some clothes, did a shower, whatever, went downstairs. And there was uh, Wilma, um, the lady from Nicaragua, that um, already at breakfast because, and the hotel um, were so um, 
yeah, like they felt so sorry for us that they opened up the breakfast earlier for us. So the two of us were having breakfast, like rushing breakfast. And then at 6, 6 a.m., we were ready, ready to go. So we checked out and we waited outside for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, nothing. So obviously we, um, we went back in right, and called together the people again. Yeah, um, they're going to be there momentar- momentarily. All right. So, so what is, what is, what is the, um, the frequency? Like, like what is the leeway? Um, what's the wavelength? Um, momentarily was a very broad, um, they took it very broad because loosely because um, momentarily was, was not within the hour, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., nothing. And you're dreaming of your bed at this point. Oh, I, I, was, I was in the lounge, in the, in the lobby waiting, and I think I, I dozed off a couple of times. So we had to like take shifts in, in, in dozing off. Um, and then what happened was... Um, we got a call. No, she called or we got received a call. I can't remember. Um, yeah, um, road trip is not going to happen anymore. Um, it, 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 it's it's um, we're good to figure have to figure something else out. You can go back to your room. We arranged that, um, but we're going we're going to figure out something else. Sorry. Okay. So luckily, went back to the room and I told them like, um, all right, I'm going to get some sleep because I'm, I'm I've been traveling for 36 hours. I'm not even in my destination i could have like traveled to the moon and back and and still would have time left and but this this we're not um so i, I need some sleep so we, we both agreed all right we need to get some sleep and they would get back to us at 3 p.m or something okay so i went to so went back to the hotel room went to, went to sleep 3 p.m um i'm i'm, I'm not making this up 3 p.m. Um, they rang me up to, to the hotel room. Um, you have to be at the airport in 45 minutes. Your plane leaves in 45 minutes. So they, they booked us tickets um, f- for um, Mexico City to Oaxaca. So rushing downstairs, um, we threw our bags into a, into, in, into a taxi and we raced to the to the airport, barely made it um, to um, on time. Flew to Oaxaca, and we all both were like, "Oh, finally! Well, we're, we're, we're getting somewhere." Um, arrived in Oaxaca, and I just 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 for the just as, uh, playfully, I told her like, "Well, you know, like there's a chance that there, 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 nobody shows up, that it's still us." She said, no, 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 it's all, all, it's all good. It's all taken care of. Um, it's going to be a smooth ride from, from here on in. Um, so I arrived in Oaxaca. We, we uh, checked, uh, we, we picked up our luggage, went outside. Nobody, nobody was waiting for us. But by the time we were there, it was like 4, 4 p.m. local, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, nobody. And at that time, I was looking at like departures, the, the, the screen, and it was like Houston at 1 a.m. I was like, if there's nobody, I was seriously considering it. If there's no one here by 11 p.m., I'm taking a flight. I'm really taking a flight. So she 
Um, and she was also considering that, like, like this, this, this is this is crazy. Anyway, so um, we she called again, and then they were told, yeah, someone is going to pick you up. Yeah, heard that one before. Um, so she and I think it was around nine nine thirty p.m. that somebody showed up with a car. Yeah, um, tell who told the back. Yeah, that's us. All right. So we got into the car. It was a tiny car, but it was like, yeah, well, we're much closer to the place than from Mexico City. So it shouldn't be a problem. Um, we drove through Oaxaca. And at some point I was like, we're driving in circles. Like we're, we're driving and we keep taking a left turn. It's before, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I've, I've seen that guy before. And I've seen this place. I've seen this McDonald's before. Um, so... I, I so Wilma and and again like my Spanish is worse rusty I that like, at the end of it I was fluent in Spanish obviously, um, so I asked her like all right and I, I think we're we're driving in circles she was like yeah 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 I think so too so we asked yeah the driver like what's going on like why are why are we driving in circles yeah we have to pick people up, um to, and it was a tiny car like oh shit okay, uh, yeah we have to pick people up. Um, but the problem was he didn't know who to pick up. He didn't know how, how to look like. He just knew there are th three guys with suitcases waiting as somewhere in Oaxaca um, near the center that he was supposed to pick up. So I was, look, so I was, I was checking this car like, it's never going to fit. It won't fit. So what we... Um, so I told Wilma, like, uh, whatever happens, if, if we have to, if have to like, um, uh, I have to like scoot over or whatever, um, you can sit on my lap and, and, and then it'll, it'll be fine. Um, fine, you know, like relatively fine. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, finally, we found these three guys. We're, they were waiting at a bus stop. So we were squeezing and their luggage was even bigger than the, themselves you know so i um so i had wilma on top of me and on top of wilma was what was her suitcase in a in a tiny car and oh if this is going to be like the entire drive to back we're going to be sorry and so then we drove again and again in circles so it's like well, what's going on um yeah i have to um, get the message um, where our car is parked. So we went down to McDonald's and I thought, no, nah, like we should go instead of like going to McDonald's. I'm like, I, I know I'm hungry, but like we have to go. Like, I want to go to where we have to be. Hmm. Luckily, we had to transfer to, to a van. Um, and then, and here's where my first um, um, assumption, uh, wrong assumption uh, kick, kicks back, kicks me in the ass is I thought it was at a, like a meeting center. This is like a grassroots meeting. Mm -hmm. So I had suits packed, everything else, because I had to like go to New York right after. Um, I came to realize that when we had to, uh, so we drove to Tlaho Tiltepec and somewhere down the mountain, there was um, a, they stopped. And like, all right, this is your check-in, this is your registration office. So we, walked out of, we stepped out of the car and I stepped into a pool of mud. 
So I was like, okay, this this is not a a, a meeting where uh, where suits are required or whatever. You know, this is not that kind of meeting. And I saw a tent, so we they opened up the tent, and there was people with with an iMac, all right, and 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 taking registrations, and then registered went back into the, the car, drove further up the mountain, and up the mountain there was, this is it, this is what they said, this is it. So I got out of the car, we all got out of the car, and so, and he pointed somewhere into the dark, yeah, this is where you, this is where you have to be, this is where you go to sleep. I'm like, what is this? All right, all right you know what, uh, I just follow the crowd, you know, and, and we'll, we'll see what happens. And um, followed the crowd to like a big, and walking along alongside a big ve- warehouse. Um, use a torch feature on my phone, um, and then open up the door of that warehouse. And there were people sleeping on the floor, on mats, and sleeping bags. So that's when I realized, oh yeah, um, this this is nowhere near the the meeting that I anticipated. So um, I don't know, even know, I remember how I got onto this whole story, but this is um, the, uh, yeah, in terms of experiences of, of um, flight experiences and, and um, in Mexico and yeah. still, still my Spanish sucks, but um, I think there's a long way that winded say of saying, welcome to, <laughs> welcome to the show, <laughs> welcome to the conversation. Um, yeah, that was uh, that, that, that was that was crazy. Yeah. It's a great um, it's a great story. Um, I mean, there, there is a I have an I have an enormous optimism when traveling that uh, it everything will be fine, and it's, mm. it it does end up in in situations where you think I could have done a bit more research. I could have prepared myself a little bit more for what I might be hitting. But so far, um, I'm what. Uh, I've been working for what nearly 30 years no no 20 plus years and so far nothing's gone wrong nothing's gone catastrophically wrong I've been lost and stuck mm-hmm. outside of airports and uh, at border crossings where I'm I'm in the wrong country and trying to desperately get into another one but nothing's gone I mean the optimism is is generally um, okay mm. so far anyway so so, so- Stuck at border crossings. I've never had that one before, though. But is, is that um, how is that feeling? It's not a. It's not a bad. I quite like. Um, I quite like land crossings. Um, mm-hmm. it's a whole different kind of people who walk over the land crossing between countries versus people who are doing the flying. Um, mm-hmm. and I quite like. I quite like land crossings. They're just completely, completely different. But the one, the one I got completely wrong was I was working with um. Uh, an organization called Uwabdu, which is a BATFOR organization in Uganda. And, um, and they're, they're a great outfit. Um, and I've known Penina, who, who sort of heads the organization for nearly 20 years now, I think. And I was visiting for one of the first times ever, actually, to where um, the organization worked. And she said, it's fine, fly into Rwanda, grab a taxi to the border, we'll pick you up from the border, and then we'll bring you into where we're working. I said, yeah, sounds sounds absolutely great i'll do that mm-hmm. so I, I flew in i grabbed my taxi i i said i literally said could you take me to the border with uganda and they said yeah sure and then off we drove 
and uh, beautiful, absolutely stunning drive. And then we got to the border crossing and I hopped out of the taxi and I got my back rucksack and I've got my passport and I'm thinking, all right, I'm ready to go. This is fine. I joined this enormous queue of people who are all lining up to, to cross over. Uh, they're sort of day laborers and things. And I could finally get to the front of the queue. And then I cross the border and then I get my phone out and say, hey, Panina, I'm here. I've done it. I've, I'm, I'm, I can't see you, but I'm standing here. And she said, um, oh, that's weird. I'm standing here too, but I can't see you anywhere. And I was like, I've got to stand out in this crowd. I've got, you've got to be able to see me. And she said, no, 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 I can't see you anywhere. Which crossing are you at? And I said, I'm sorry, are there more than one? Because that might be an issue. <laughs> and she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she named the one that, we were, that she was at. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a two and a half hour drive away. I mean, if I, if I walk, it's going to take me a week. Um, and so I had to go back over the border into Rwanda, find my taxi driver before he disappeared, and then head down two and a half hours down the coast. And it was, it was fine. I mean, there, you know, I was two and a half hours late, which was slightly annoying, um, particularly for Panina, who was waiting for me. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it was fine. I mean, I could have looked up how many border crossings there were in advance and it would have made things slightly easier for, for people, but it didn't, not a catastrophic outcome. And I'm, I'm, I'm super curious, um, because, um, I, I, from my experience, I like considering, like I helped, I was quite optimistic. I wasn't like really, um, pessimistic or like. Like oh shit, this is um, my life. My life is effed. Um, where, um, yeah. How do how do you, what is your thought process? Because I'm super curious about that. Because um, I want to learn that 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 optimism. Um, yeah, is it something that that you can you can uh, that you um, a thought that you that you pull into your mind or is it an experience? I don't. I don't know. I think it's just. I think it's partly that. Um, nothing's ever gone wrong. Nothing's gone seriously wrong before. So my, I, I'm working on a quite a solid assumption that nothing will in the future. There's not much to back it up. I mean, things do go wrong. Um, but, but I've, I've sort of traveled with so many people and so many places and it's always worked out. And it's partly that, um, the people I tend to travel with or to, um, are just really flexible and friendly and supportive and sort of open. And so when things go wrong, generally you can say, oh, help, something's gone wrong. And you know, you find somebody who walks up behind you in the airport and says, Alta, and you think, thank God it's happened. But that sort of thank God moment happens quite, um, quite a bit. Yeah, like um, definitely the NA, because you, um, Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, but but I've I've been um. Not all, yeah. How should I put it? Yeah, you travel a lot. Well, you've been to a lot of places. Um, and I'm I'm. I know people that are that want to do um yeah the same work that that that, that type of, at least the same same type of work that you and I do. But you've been, you've been to Chiang Mai. I love Chiang Mai. I yeah. love Chiang Mai. Oh. Um. Yeah, and, and originally from Australia. So, like, how what, what is the, um, I would say like the the origin your origin story? Um, because uh, I think I think that's super fascinating. 
for for people to um, yeah to put you in a like yeah not you in the right context but like to to give a little give a little depth to lose to this conversation yeah um I, yeah it's a tricky one I mean Chiang Mai Chiang Mai is huge for me um I uh when I was quite young when I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do at university I wasn't really sure what it was going to be and so I did a bit of health a bit of medicine study and then I thought I just I don't know yet I don't know what it is I, I'm still looking I can't figure it out and so I decided to go for a go travel sort of leave Australia see what else there is out there and just see see if there was some sort of meaning I could find somewhere and my dad actually said, um, listen, if you're going to do this, um, you should start by um, finding an organization and just doing some work with them and, and you know, do something sensible before you just travel around and, and, uh, and probably do silly things like drink too much. Um, and so I did. I, a friend of his introduced me to an organization called Impact, um, who you, you might know, um, they're an amazing organization and they're based in Chiang Mai and so I sort of pitched up at Impact aged 18 and a half maybe 19 not being able to speak a word of Thai not being able to speak a word of Karen or Akka or Mong or any other language that would have been sensible or useful and um, and they were incredibly sort of welcoming and, and open and they were doing this project on uh, cultural education in at the village level to use languages, indigenous languages in school rather than Thai. And Thai is a very complicated and very sort of centralizing, very formal language. And they just wanted to open up their primary school system so that the kids who were coming from Karen villages could speak Karen or Hmong. Or, and also that what they were learning wasn't just Thai mythology and Thai history, but what they were learning was, you know, Karen mythology and the Karen of origin stories and stuff. And, um, and it was an amazing uh, project, it was incredible. Um, so I worked on that for about three months and then at the end of that, I thought, I don't wanna leave, I mean, this is brilliant. Um, so I ended up working with Impact for, I think it was six years before I left. Um, and by the end of that six years, I had the language um, and I had a little bit more of a sense of sort of what it was um, that, I, that I wanted to do. Um, but they were great, and it was one of the one of the reasons why I think they were so good for me at that time is that they Impact was established by a group of early twenties um, Indigenous students, and they were some of the first Indigenous students in Thailand to get their masters and their bachelors, and they had been in hostels together, and so they decided that they were going to establish this organisation, and it was going to be all of the Northern Thai indigenous peoples, and they would form this organization between themselves and of themselves in order to support all of their struggles. And they had this amazing system where if anyone wanted to join, they had to go and live in a community that wasn't theirs for two years. So they got the language and the history and the culture and sort of had an understanding of, of another one of the groups within Thailand. Um, and they got, you know, they were fantastic. They were the most amazing education. And I still work with them today. Um, they're still there. They're still working all over Northern Thailand. Um, yeah, so that's sort of really what got me settled um, in doing this kind of work. And they also, Northern Thailand has a lot of protected areas, a lot of national parks, a lot of uh, reserved forest areas. 
and that tends to be the way in which most of the territories of Indigenous peoples are sort of have been claimed or taken away or incorporated into the state. Um, so it got me really involved in sort of conservation, the impact of conservation and what conservation feels like and looks like um, at the local level. Is that the, um, yeah, the, the idea or like the, the philosophy of new staffers living in other people's communities, is that something that you see often um, or would like to see more often? I think I would like to see it much more often. I don't think we, I don't, I don't think it happens enough. And and even for impact, actually, after about five or six years of doing it, um, they stopped because it was such a, it was such an ask of people coming in. And and if people with you know partners or little children or the idea of lifting up your whole life and then moving to a different community for two years and just sitting and listening and learning. Um, was quite, you know, it's quite a big ask, quite a difficult thing to sort of afford to do as well, to pay people to not do very much. Um, but I think we should do, I think, I think all of, I think a lot of this kind of work would be um, significantly improved by being required to live with and, and, uh, and, and yeah, I would like to see a lot more of it. I don't know how you do it exactly, but I, I would like to see more of it. Yeah, um, like the, the, when you brought it up, I was like, yeah, I don't see that happening. And it makes a lot of sense, actually, 100%. Um, but I see that, see that a lot, happening a lot. Is that your experience with impact? And I, I, I love the abbreviation, by the way. Um, is that um, what, because I know you, um, and full, full disclosure, I knew Helen before she knew me um as as in terms of like yeah you you come across names you read papers and you, knew, you read articles and and if you're in my line of work like not work it's not even work it's just like what i love to do um like you, you read a lot of them and um there's this there's a red line uh, no not a red line an undercurrent in everything and which is um uh land rights and uh, at least this is what i um, what I gather. And obviously, there are a lot of people working on land rights, um, but um, only um, in your, whatever you do, whatever you post, whatever you, yeah, whatever you write, I, I, can, I can see like front and center land rights. Um, is, yeah, how did, what was the experience that made you like, oh yeah, this, this is, um, where I, uh, what I want to dedicate um, the the work that I do in terms of indigenous peoples' land rights. I don't. I think I think it's partly because of um, it, it, because the what happens when they're not secure is um, is catastrophic. I mean that if you have the secu security of tenure or security of place gives you somewhere to stand in order to look. At everything else and to push on everything else and any any process or any attempt towards self-determination um, for any group of people uh, or a people or a group of communities if you don't have security of the place that you stand on then you're everything else is going to be harder and and weaker and the defense of language and the defense of traditional knowledge and 
the defense of the way you culturally manage your space. Um, I mean, many, many, many peoples have managed to defend all of that stuff without secure land rights, which is extraordinary. Um, but if the security of the land tenure is there, it just, it totally changes the battle. Um, and there's, you know, there's massive power disparities that exist anyway in the world. And even with secure land rights, you're still gonna have, you know, massive corporations that have political influence and you're going to have governments and you're going to have all these groups, illicit actors, you know, drug traffickers, you know, all the peoples and groups that can threaten, they'll still all be there. But if you've got secure tenure, you're a step forward into defense. So I think that's, I think that's partly it. It's also partly that that was what was articulated so clearly when I started working, when I stopped working with Impact and I started working with, um, sort of networks of indigenous organizations. It was, that was what I was hearing at the front of everyone's discussions as well. It's, it was always land rights, access to control over ownership of resources is, is sort of line one. Um, and it makes sense to me, you know, I've seen, the, I've seen changes that can happen if they do become more secure. Um, but it's also, it's the hard, I think it's one of the hardest ones to win. Um, because people, you know, governments don't want to let go of land. They don't want to let go of resources. And if they've claimed them, the process of prizing it back is, is tough. Um, and most, most of the fights worth having are tough. So if this one's tough, it's probably worth having. Oh, yeah, 100%. And um, was the... For example, Thailand, or because you were also stayed for a while in in in, in Nigeria, oh, Nigeria, sorry, Kenya, Nairobi. Um, yeah, is there any any thing or idea um, that yeah that, that people can that you can point towards? Like yeah, that, that's 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 a start, or that that, that that's that's um, something that way that can we see we can see as as a form of inspiration is is it the the the, the, the parks situation um that you uh, the, the protective park situation that you described in thailand um because yeah what i what i gather is um yeah in conversation conferences and everything else that um we we have an idea. No, no, I mean, yeah, we have we have our principles. Of, obviously, like we want to land lands back, but um, it's some in some conversations it stops at the how, like all right, like how does it look like? Um, is there anything that you um, yeah, that, that you see point towards like yeah, that that it's 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 a part of a good idea. Um, that I would like, to, or do you have an idea? Maybe, maybe that's a better question. Like, is, do you have a, um, a like, and it can be a utopian view, obviously. Like, like I can, I can see it ha I can see this very well happening in terms of land rights. You mean what? What? Uh, you mean sort of in in terms of what it looks like for 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 land tenure to be secure and land rights to be. Yeah, like the, the, how how to get there? Like we all know why we need to get the back, get it back. Um, the the question is is like how do you get it back? Yeah. I think so. This is one of the things that I find um, endlessly uh, sort of challenge challenging or or complicated is um, 
the the answer is always going to be different in each site and each place and and each government is exerting a different kind of pressure and even the nature of the resources that happen to be under the ground in a particular place will result in the pressure on that place being being different um so the the diversity of what the solutions have to be is immense i mean in each each place and each time but that's not to say that there aren't um opportunities for much bigger coalitions and networks to help um, and to to support the emergence of those different solutions and one of the things that i think um impact had a really big impact on me uh, about was it wasn't one indigenous people who set up the organization it was six and and they were making a decision that all of those six would be stronger in concert than any one of them would be alone and it's the thing that really struck me when I stopped working at Impact and I started working at a, it's another organization um, which has an incredibly long name um, called the International Alliance of Indigenous and Tribal Peoples of the Tropical Forests. Um, and, uh, and that sort of, you know, that was a global, that was one of the earlier attempts at a global network of indigenous organizations. And what I saw immediately was exactly the same impulse of we are stronger together than any of us will be independently. And that's unbelievably powerful. And you know, I spent the late 1990s and the early 2000s watching these incredible victories, like the drafting of the declaration and then the passage of the declaration and then the establishment of the permanent forum and then you know, the establishment of indigenous caucuses in environmental treaties and the establishment of indigenous caucuses in human rights treaties. And I just, you know, these, these are, unbelievably powerful acts and of of coalitions and networks of peoples and that you know that's unbelievably inspiring and that's a big part of i think i think that's a big part of in any any journey towards a, a a world in which there's more justice and equity and land rights are secured and you know the utopia that you mentioned of you know what does it look like how do you get there um one very big part is that that kind of mutually respectful networking uh, stays around and grows um, and gets stronger. Um, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you must see the same thing. That, that, that level of impact in the space of about 25 years is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely want, want to talk more, uh, about, um, about coalition, coalitions and coalition building and, like, and the impact of it. One question actually is quick sidestep. Um, what I ask a lot of people, but the first time that I asked it in a podcast is um, we all see the decoration as a, as a monument, monumental um, um, place in time. Um, and it's like a, 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 a the, the passing of the decoration is a moment where I, I, I was there when I heard it. Like, um, what can you remember um, bits and pieces of it, or or have a story to share? What what um, what did you do, or where were you when you heard um, that the declaration was adopted? I was in my living room in Bangkok. I was working with UNDP at the time, and uh, I was in my living room at really late at night because of the time difference. And I was sitting there with some friends and we were just chatting, and my friends were. Um, uh, indigenous uh, were of indigenous background and 
we didn't we weren't even really thinking because we didn't really think that that was the day it was going to happen we were sort of we were slightly distracted by the whole thing and i remember one of their telephones beeped and did like text message came through and he, he was like oh, I was gonna pick it up. and then his face just completely and he was like it's happened i mean it's been adopted it's good and they all of us were just like but uh, uh, and it was weird because we were so far away from any of you know the sites in we, we were just you know we were having dinner we were just chatting after dinner and and then this thing dropped into the room and, and there was a declaration and there hadn't been one before and it was yeah it was and we all we were all like so what do we do now i mean we have to celebrate but what do we do and so then we spent the rest of the evening calling other friends who were involved you know had been associated or involved in in the discussions in some way and just going oh my god did you hear oh my god did you hear and it was just a whole yeah it was it was good but the thing that i think i think about the most with the declaration is um i wasn't involved in the discussion of the content of the declaration you know at all i knew it was ongoing but i that was being done by others um and uh, but i used the declaration a lot so I've become much more familiar with the text afterwards than beforehand. So I knew it was politically important, but I hadn't really engaged in you know, what Article 33 said. Or, um, but since I have, and I just, I, you know, my respect for the drafters of the declaration just gets bigger and bigger by year, because you think, you know, what, how did they tackle this conundrum? You know, and then you look at it and you think, huh, that's not a bad, solution to the you know it's 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 quite it, it's quite extraordinary and the issue of um definition of indigenous peoples and the solidity of the declaration in saying not our business we're doing this we're not doing that and then gender and how male and female roles are and how you respect the diversity of that and that's all in there too i mean it's yeah they're the two things i i think if i was going to say anything about the declaration it was great fun when it passed but I didn't know that much about the content and then since this sort of drumbeat of this is an excellent uh approach to a lot of different complicated conundrums yeah it is um I was uh, when I heard that the declaration was passed actually my mom told me and I was like okay hmm now what and and then and people ask like, all right, we have the decoration now. Now what? And then my mom and, and all her, yeah, uh, um, seriousness. Now we just continue working, and which is actually true. Like like it's it's not like you have to you have to celebrate obviously, but you have to also like work on top of, work with it. And I one hundred percent agree. Um, I have I have to admit when it when it passed, I was like. Okay, but more, more in terms of, yeah, I don't know what this means. Like, I'm like, yeah. And then, then the more you use it, I'm like, oh, these guys are genius, hey. Oh yeah. Um, and and then you you hear the origin story that the the um um the battles that they fought, and, and like the the whole idea, like so something that that struck me as 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 a as a major epiphany was when somebody said it is that um the declaration is written as how indigenous people see the world mm. 
all right, I get that, rights and everything else. Yeah, but it's it's more than that. Like it is all the um, uh, provisions are interdependent, interrelated, and like it's it's a holistic document. Mm-hmm. And that's when I like, like, ah, oh, yeah, you guys are geniuses. Seriously, it, it was, um, I'm, I'm thinking of, of doing, like letting people from the likes of Kenneth there, like, hey, you got here, here, here's a microphone. You just explain the growing pains, like explain how things came about. Um, Cause I think it's fascinating because we take, yeah, we take, um, I don't want to say like we take the declaration for granted, but we need to know like what, um, what, what, um, how did it came about? And for example, is a biggie like self-determination. Um, it is a thorn in the eye of, of, of states. Um, and yeah, so, so that um, because we got it in there in the form that um, it is most um, serves us, um, that yeah, you should you should you should be using it. Um, so yeah, it is um definitely. Thank you for sharing, by the way. Um, so like where you were and how you thought about uh, what, what you think about the decoration, and it is um, um, it's it's um, it's I'm always interested in in where people where you were when when it happened. And remember, I was on a boat. Um, but yeah, you were you were in um you were at a much nicer place in 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 Bangkok. Um. What? So you, you talked about coalitions and 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 alliances. Is that um, is that something that Indigenous people need to do more in, in, in your view? Are we doing it the right way? Um, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't I I don't know that I would. Um, have a really strong opinion on whether it should be done more or, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, what the thing I think is complicated now is that um, there are so many different processes and so many different areas and so many different um, uh, places where it's important for indigenous voices to be heard, and it feels like it's a much more complicated space than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so it's moved from sort of, you know, you, you used to have the working group on indigenous populations and not much more than that. Maybe the World no. Congress and <laughs> a, a couple of conservation spaces. Um, and there was a bit more, you know, there was the Rio summit and other, other spaces as well. But now it's, you know, there's, there's hundreds of certification schemes that businesses have set up to certify their products and every one of them has an impact on indigenous rights in in some way down the supply chain and then you have um uh not only the permanent forum but also the expert working group but also the european commission and how you've represented the european commission and then it's just multitudinous now there's so many different spaces and because there's a recognition that it is right and appropriate and proper that indigenous representative voices are in those spaces i think it's just it's just really it's a lot you know it's Mm -hmm. a lot for any any indigenous organization that has a global perspective or a global outlook they have to be tracking a lot of stuff you know it's the the climate change convention the biodiversity convention the sustainable development goals the and that's just the state-based stuff and then you've got the international what, what it's called iicm icmm international council on mining and metals um 
which is sort of the mining bundle, and then that um, aluminium sustainability standard, and then fishing, and then, you know, it's, it, there's just a lot. And I don't think there's any, I mean, there's clearly no way that that happens without networking and coalition building, because you have to have different people in different spaces. Um, but the thing that I think is just incredibly impressive about the Indigenous movement is that there's so many moments at which the different elements of the movement sort of check in with each other and sort of maintain a commonality rather than dispersing. And, and that dispersing is, you know, pe pe people are being pulled apart into different spaces. So putting the effort into keeping a commonality there is, um, is really hard. Um, is really hard. Um, but I, I, I don't think I could say, I think Indigenous people should be doing more. I think, I think I'm, I, I can see huge efforts being put into something which is very valuable um, and increasingly challenging. Yeah. Um, it's, I, yeah, like the Indigenous caucus is something that I've like, it's like, I just think for every Indigenous organization, peoples, the mix its entrance into like advocacy or international advocacy diplomacy world. It's something that you like, it should be your first point of entry um, and to, to, um, to get familiarized with, because that's an institutional memory, you know, like we're, we're working on an, an, an agenda, like a common agenda. Um, so, you know, what, what's at stake and, and what, uh, what needs to be done and what, how you can contribute. And I think that um, is a very, powerful and you see it um for example under the UNFCCC um that um yeah other constituencies are mirroring like we're doing this doing doing this similar um because it's yeah they see it works for us and then if it works for indigenous peoples it might as well work for uh, other constituencies as well and I think that is that that is um yeah I think a alliance coordination like it's like consolidating and coordinating i think that is super important and then and they already um and it's only growing like the the, the um the platforms that that affect indigenous peoples or that we have access to we're creating so many the the platform on in traditional knowledge under unfcc um there's one on, there's an, a platform on, under ifat fail and, and there's so many we're creating all these um, uh, um, the, these platforms, uh, but we also have to make sure that we keep them um, involved or keep them uh, keep that we keep ourselves involved in that. And I see, I, I um, yeah, I see a, a challenge for indigenous peoples um, in terms of stamina, as in like there, there's there's so many things going on, and um, the question is. Um, um, yeah, we have to. We're raising the bar, but which also means that we have to raise our own standards as well in terms of like being able to meet that, meet that, meet that bar. Um, otherwise, you create all these amazing new platforms, amazing new things, but they become toothless if you don't if you if you don't use it. So, um, yeah, coordination co consolidation is 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 um, something that um, we as in, as Indigenous people should, should be very much. Um, um, yeah, we should be um, aware of and, and pushing towards. Um, there's something that I don't know if you're seeing it as well. Um, and like, love to hear thoughts on it. I see an emergence of um, 
yeah, how should I call it? Global Indigenous Councils, um, 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 coalitions, and etc. etc. Et um, which, um, yeah, I look at it as a as a as a. <clears throat> I'm I'm a little bit on the on the fence about it. If if it, um if it's um I know. And from what you what you described, I fully agree that we need to need to coordinate, and we need to consolidate positions on views and everything else, so that we all we all have the same. We all all want want our lands back, obviously. So um, that, that um, so in, in that sense, you have to um, yeah um, know that there's an agenda at play. That there, there there's we're, we're doing there's a strategy at play. Um, there's some coalitions out there that are emerging, new, and you see that it's all framed towards becoming a funnel, as in as in as in become a platform for Indigenous peoples, and um, that it becomes a funnel from from multiple voices into into one one voice, and I think it it, it is a um, yeah, it's a slippery slope. Um, um, that, at least that's how I see it. Because self-determination is, at least in my view, is 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 the um, is what you should what you have, what you should pre preserve. And um, if you, yeah, people see um, see self-determination, self-determination, comma sovereignty, and um, yeah. You, you give away a little bit of your self-determination of sovereignty in 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 those um in those coalitions so um i think an inter interesting time i think as an interesting 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 time of of the how indian peoples are moving or where we are moving into um as it's it's more challenging 100 um and I never knew about these. We talked about mining and, and, and mining of metals. International Council on Mining and Metals. Yeah, are there any Indigenous peoples involved in that in those processes? Or? Yeah, yeah. They're um, so they got close to adopting. Uh, they have an Indigenous peoples policy, but they spent quite a long time talking about free for informed consent as a principle and whether they would. Um, uh, so the council issues guidelines which its members are then supposed to adopt and its members are things like Rio Tinto and BHP and you're big big actors in, in mining and um, they have a you know, really really long discussion um, about free prime form consent I think it was 2004 2005 and there were some um, very strong indigenous voices in there at, at that time um, mm. and then uh, led partly from the Philippines because the Philippines was um, uh, as you probably know, uh, mining and dams are, uh, um, in Indigenous territories in the Philippines have been two of the things which have galvanised um, uh, Indigenous advocacy there. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the mi mining and metals one is, it has, it has done some, it's, it's created policies um, which are good, but the challenge, and you, you'll know this um, uh, as equally as well as me or probably much better, the challenge is always you, you secure the global thing and then you need to get that thing implemented at the local level. And so the fight is only ever 
you know, it's a circular fight and you have whatever you get globally, you then have to use locally and then use the local lessons to demand more local, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a cycle. And I think, um, I think, uh, I think that's, that's part of, you were talking before about the emergence of global coalitions and sort of global, um, uh, sort of representative frameworks. And I, I think that the, that is really, really difficult. And I think the international alliance that I worked with in the early 2000s didn't, it did a lot of good stuff, but it wasn't, it couldn't be a global voice for indigenous peoples because there is no single global voice for indigenous peoples. It just, there just isn't. And what happened in the early 2000s is quite a lot of states and business industry groupings and stuff felt that it would be much easier if there was a single voice for indigenous people. So they started to create spaces where one person could sit and the international alliance was like, well, you're an international alliance, so you must be the voice. You can come in and be the voice. And, and that the international alliance couldn't hold steady under that level of pressure because it couldn't be what it was assumed to be. It never claimed to be it. It never said we are the one indigenous voice of the world. Um, rightly, it never made that sort of claim. But there was quite a lot of um, uh, both states and industry bodies that wanted it to be. And so it was, you know, it, it, it then sort of collapsed under that, that pressure. It still exists, um, but it exists as a, as a, um, as a smaller network. Um, and I, I think the same pressure still comes to bear. There is this sort of back and forth tension between um, networking and coalitions make your voice stronger, but the bigger your network and coalition, the fewer voices are expressed. So there will always be a pull back to smaller groupings as well, um, and I I think that's I, th I think that's really healthy. I think one of the principles of never block anyone else's voice or never say you're representing someone you're not um, is really healthy. And the you know the idea that an in, a, a regional grouping will never speak uh, on behalf of a national grouping or a local grouping or shouldn't anyway. And should always let that voice sort of come through. It's challenging though, because the yeah the pressures are immense. Um, so the response to those pressures needs to be very strategic, as you pointed uh, pointed to earlier. Yeah, because it, it is, and thank you for uh, for um for, for for explaining that like the giving that example. Um, it it is very helpful in uh, for. And these people in general to, to, to look at things. Because um, I, I believe that we, we need to, uh, um, yeah, like so something that we, we have our voice, we have our own voice. And um, yeah, and I think that that's one of the, one of the strong points actually for, of these peoples also is that, that we recognize that you have your own voice and I have my own voice and, and there's, there's, yeah, you said you said very well. Like, there's no one voice of indigenous peoples. Um, I think that is, uh, um, yeah. I use well. I, I'll steal it. I think to 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 be honest, I'll use. I'll, I'll add it to my repertoire. There's no one voice of indigenous peoples, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. And we we keep saying that, but like it's, it's sometimes like when you, when, you're, when you're too long, and you've been a lot longer in in the work that I am, that I've been, 
uh, but like you, you start to you dive too deep um whereas um yeah sometimes um the easiest the easiest way of their easier way of of explaining things um for for other people so certain other other people understand so yeah like things like you, what you just said right now yeah it comes with experience obviously um but yeah i i tend to gravitate towards or yeah let me explain let me like explain the um the decoration and let me like explain special determination and like the the, the the political climate whereas it it you just you could very well just say well there's no one voice of Indigenous peoples ah shoot yeah that's a one-liner that's a, that's a punchline you know that's and yeah well yeah i don't know it's we always i always look for punchlines but also look for context so but this is this is a very this is a very good one um yeah it, it is uh, um any i sense um yeah how, how should i say it how do you how do you how do you perceive um how do you, how do you look at things what is what is in terms of the movement in these peoples at large, um, are you, do you see opportunities? Are you optimistic? Um, what is, uh, yeah, I don't know, this is a very broad question, um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious about how, um, yeah, where people are, how they, how they look at, how they look at the movement um regardless indigenous or non-indigenous I, I don't like i don't and i don't i don't but if I, what do I, I don't like to use the word non-indigenous um because people like yourself allies been so long uh, within the movement your heart is in the right place um so you your you, your allies um so i like to use that word more than non-indigenous is, is that but yeah is that thrown at you um in the past being, being a non-indigenous person yeah indigenous land rights. um no um no i mean i i do th i know that it's very i you know it's very important for me to remember and understand and and constantly realize that i'm a non-indigenous uh, actor in a in a space that belongs to other other people and should belong to other people um so i i um uh i it is rarely pointed out by others but mm -hmm. it's something which is very core to the way i choose to in in involve myself in in this work um and i had quite a you know i had a moment which i expect probably most non-indigenous people who work in this work have at one moment or another of um perhaps it's time for me to move to working on something else. I mean, it's not, the indigenous movement is super strong and uh, will survive perfectly well without me. Um, so I, you know, we, whether there was another fight that I should engage in and whether that, you know, whether that I should sort of shift. Um, and then I, and then I decided not to for a couple of reasons. One, one of them was um, that I think it's a really important fight, and I don't think any I don't think any um, 
I think changing the way power works in our world is really important. And I think the role of indigenous peoples, particularly territorial spaces where indigenous peoples are, um, really don't have, it's not just or equitable or fair or right, the way that indigenous territories and peoples are treated in the global economic system. So it's, it's a problem. And it's not fair to just turn away from the problem and say, that's not my thing. Um, I don't have any responsibility to fix that problem because I'm not indigenous myself. And I, I think actually the opposite is true that if you're, you know, if you're of, if you're more of the economic system, which is the problem, you probably have a slightly bigger responsibility to pay attention to it. And, and the, and the important principle for people like me is, um, is uh, absolutely never try to take leadership within the space but to sort of constantly approach it as what is the best thing I can do to help this fight move on a little bit further than it is at the moment. So it's, if you're coming at it as a, as a sort of a question, um, it, it, then I think there's space for people like me. I think if you come in with an answer, then you've probably made a mistake and you're not, you know, you're not gonna be a particularly helpful person. And it was quite, it was quite useful for me at the very beginning that because I was, I had this really um, like low level entry position, which is where everyone starts working at the International Alliance. And I was basically just the information officer, I was the logistics officer, but it meant that for a whole number of years, I was supporting bringing caucuses together, never speaking at them but just bringing them together, buying the flight tickets, getting them translated, getting the, 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 you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so I had a, I had a um, spectator role on the evolution of power within these indigenous groupings. And, and you know, if you get a spectator view on something as inspiring as that, it's quite hard to let go of. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to leave the fight. Um, so I had to find, you know, I had to do the work of finding finding what is the space for non-Indigenous people um, who want to work on land rights issues. And I think, I, I think, I guess, I don't, I don't actually think I've ever had this conversation with, um, with another non-Indigenous person involved in Indigenous rights, but I think it's probably the case that we all go through that process of, you know, to, to what extent should I be here at all and under what conditions? Yeah. And what advice would you give, like the first type of advice would you give um, to a, um, all right, yeah, non-indigenous, and, and I'm just saying it because I, I don't like the word, use the word, um, uh, like, um, wants to step into helping indigenous peoples, uh, what is the, the advice or the experience that you would, um, give them? Uh, the advice would be, um, uh, is to listen. Um, really, really carefully. I mean, that you're not gonna, no one can tell you how to do any of this work um, in a, in a sh short space of time. There's no one hour lecture that somebody can give you that gives you any, any sense at all. Um, it's why that thing that impacted for the two years was so powerful. It's the, they were putting all of their staff in a position where their only role was to listen, just listen, learn, learn about someone else's language, about their history, about, how they formulate what their struggles are. And they were indigenous people being asked to learn about other indigenous peoples. And so any, anyone from my sort of background is just, you know, shut up and listen for at least three years. 
and then and then and then you'll have a better sense of how to do it um or indeed if it's the right kind of work for you but yeah i think i think it's i mean it sounds slightly trite and it's quite hard to just shut up and listen for two or three years you have to have something useful to do while you're while you're doing that um but yeah i think that would be my advice is just don't don't speak very much um for as long as possible um you because um that you're yeah because that's an amazing advice by the way because because um uh, and yeah your whole track record and 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 mindset um because i i i sense a lot of um i sense a lot of optimism in 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 in, in how you, how you talk and how, how you look at things um which makes me wonder why then um, what was the experience that you thought about? Yeah, maybe I should be doing something else. It was just the the knowledge that you know the indigenous caucus spaces are really um, they have to be really sacred and really sort of protected. Um, there's a huge number of NGOs and civil society actors and stuff who have slightly different agendas who would really, really, really like to be in that space and and ship moving the agenda or sort of trying to have some political influence. And, <clears throat> and rightly, that needs to be, um, you know, civil society has its own space. NGOs have their own space. And then there's indigenous people and they just have to be recognized as being different. And, and understanding that made me realize that I I was trying to be in both you know I'm I work for an NGO and I support indigenous organizations and caucus spaces and is that okay because they're supposed to be separate spaces so it was it was it wasn't that there was um it wasn't someone or some statement or anyone ever saying come on, mate, I don't think this is your place. Um, that never happened. It was more just me coming to the realization of how important it was that those spaces were kept separate. And then me thinking, hold on a second, does that mean I've got to step away and try and find a different, you know, a justice agenda in, in an NGO space or something? Um, but in the end, I just had too many, too many friends and too many networks and too many sort of um, I'm not willing to let go of this. There's still useful stuff to be done. Oh yeah, and and quite frankly, we're not going to let you go. We're not going to allow you to uh, to walk away from this. And um, you're yeah, you're you're like I said, you know, um, um, the indigenous movement, indigenous world really benefits from people like yourself. Um, you know, so like, it's, and um, your optimism, your you, your way of looking at things, it it really rubs off rubs off on us. And yeah, and and. Um, so yeah, um, I don't think even, um, we're going to let you, let you go if, even if you wanted to, um, what is, uh, um, you, you talked about, so you support ind indigenous peoples and you also work for, for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for NGO. How do you, um, yeah, how should I say it? walk that middle line you know like, or or do you or do you like go back and forth um, um how, how, do, how do you how you balance how do you balance it um it is really it is really um tricky so i i did i 
from when I started working, it was always working with Indigenous organisations. And then there was a point after about 10 years of working where I stopped working with Indigenous organisations and I joined, um, I joined the UN. And that sort of seemed like, uh, you know, this is a, this incredible seat of power that does stuff and I should probably learn how it works. Um, but the reason I joined it is because there was a, an Indigenous woman leader, um, Chandra, Roy, who had established a program that was just dedicated to Indigenous rights. And I thought, you know what, if that, that's the bit I want to work for, if I'm going to do, if I'm, if I'm going to do anything. Um, and, then, and then I found it quite challenging when I then left the UN and joined an NGO, um, understanding whether it was going to be possible. Um, but the NGO that I joined is one that views itself as being an ally to in, the indigenous movement and that's the only reason I, I joined them was because they that the organization already had a sense of itself as that and because of that they're perfectly it's a comfortable home for me um but it, it did also um mean you know in NGOs specialize more than indigenous organizations so NGOs tend to go you know we do this and this is our small bit and indigenous organizations are forced to look at a lot more because they've you know the pressures on the peoples that they represent to come from all over the place so they have to be you know experts in everything um and and ngos have the privilege of being able to go we work on child slavery and that's it that's our thing um and joining an ngo did mean that to some extent so i became a i became an expert on um, public finance safeguards, um, which is not something I thought I was going to get involved with, um, and not, in fact, something I even knew existed, I think, before I joined FUB. Um, but it was an example for me of the, of the importance of all these little spaces that each had importance for Indigenous people. So World Bank safeguards are incredibly influential because they impact on what the International Finance Corporation says about indigenous rights and then the international finance corporation is the model for all of the business standards so if you're you know you've got to be in one to influence the next to influence the next so i actually quite enjoyed that process of getting deep on one topic um and uh, and there were always indigenous organizations leading the charge um in each of those spaces um, so it was always, I, I was always able to do it as an ally rather than as a, as an expert, um, which meant that it was okay. But now, yeah, now I've been at FPP for almost 14 years, so it looks like I won't be going anywhere. It's, it seems to be. Yeah, you, um, yeah, 14 years, wow, that, that, that's, that's quite a, quite a long time. Um, yeah, um, yeah, so, so pe people that. Um, all right, let's, let's do a quick plug, right? FPP, uh, for the work that you do. Um, people that don't know, for, um, FPP means Forest People Pro Program. Um, yeah, let, let's, um, um, I'm not going to say like, do your elevator pitch because I don't, <laughs> that sounds too Western, and, but yeah, just a plug um, so that people know um, yeah, what FPP is and where you work. Yeah, so there's something really interesting about the reason FPP was founded, which mm. I really like, and I think is really um, relevant now. Um, so FPP was founded in 
I, I might be getting this wrong. I think it was 1992. Um, but I'm not taking you into court, though. Okay, good. <laughs> the founder might give me a call after this. Um, but the and, and the reason was back in the early 90s, there was a real sense, and you would know this from all of the, um, the sort of media at the time, of there's an environmental crisis. You know, there's the rainforest crisis, Sting, Rainforest Foundation, all of these sort of environmental movements emerged for really, really, and then the Rio summit was held and all these conventions, were, and it was all environmentally framed, all of it. And the environmental framing was, it's a catastrophe. Anything we can do to save the planet, we need to do. And it turned into a sort of a steamroller, which ignored any, which was in danger of ignoring any nuance or any local rights or any you know, it was such a powerful sort of global movement of it, that it led to the massive expansion of protected areas and conserving the world. And it had it had no real sense in that that there were people who were already doing this who should be recognised and protected within an environmental movement. It just didn't really. So our founder, this fellow called Marcus, um, he founded our organisation because he said, oh, "We're all talking about forests." nobody's talking about the people in the forests and there were a couple of there are a number of other organizations that came up around the same time like survival international and um the world rainforest movement which was a rainforest framed movement that had a lot of um human rights sort of work in it as well um but basically that was the kernel of the organization that that in, the environmental movement was very good at ignoring um that the best solution for some of our environmental challenges already exists and it's tenure rights and tenure security and land rights and supporting people on the ground. Um, and I like that as a, as a reason for being. So that's one of the reasons why as an organization it was one that I thought I could um, hitch my wagon to for some time. Um, and I think that's very relevant now because I think we're facing another um, moment of uh, global consciousness around ecological and climate damage and loss um, and I, th I think we have the same potential problem of this catastrophe is so serious that we should do anything we can and the biggest single answer is going to be enclosing and protecting the wild spaces left and throwing all the people out and you know that's something we've seen happen enough times to know that it's a really bad idea um but i just i think i think we're in i think that danger is real and present and that there's a real you know parts of humanity doesn't don't trust humanity very much and they'd quite like to to just remove us all of us any of us from spaces on the earth and i don't i don't i think being i think that's really dangerous um for indigenous peoples who a number of them occupy those wild spaces that remain. So I think it's a dangerous moment. And I think, yeah, I, I can see echoes of what's happened in the past. And it sort of feels like the wave is cresting again. Does any of that make sense? I feel like I was rambling. No, no, it, it makes perfectly sense. Um, the, um, yeah, because pe people know, um, or NGOs, people know organizations, um, but they don't know like the philosophy behind it. They don't know like why it, it, it was started. And obviously I could ask the founder, you know, like I'll have him on the podcast. Maybe I should, I don't know. 
Um, but it is also interesting, like to see how how a person that works for the NGO, like and and and, and people, a person like you, people like yourself, um, yeah, how how they how they um, yeah, like how how do you perceive that in an organization? So it is, it makes perfectly sense to me, and. Um, dare I say, like, if it makes perfect sense to me, then it, it makes perfect sense to, to a lot of other people as well. Um, I'm a moron. And like, I, I'm, in many cases, I'm a moron. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just learning as I do. This is this whole podcast is for people that really want to like. Um, um, this is not a I gotcha podcast. It's, it's actually it is um, me learning in public, and that, that's what I do. And I've, I think that that's also. I think that I came to that realization with, with, with COVID is that like, yeah, I'm, I'm at home or, or not at home. I'm grounded. I can't travel yet. And you come to some reflection and my reflection was, I know people, I know people, but I don't really know them. Um, I know people face value, but I don't know them. Like what makes them tick? Like, why do they do what they do? Like yeah, well, why not? Like try to dive deeper into that. Um, I think it, so. That that's it, this is all like trying to yeah, enrich myself in, in terms of um, yeah. I think you know, the thing is the thing is like um, when you when you think you know a lot, you know more about what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so um, somebody said it. I'm, I'm stealing it, so don't 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 quote me on it because uh, I, I I just stole it from someone. I can't I can just can't remember who said it, and I, I probably also butchered it as well. Um, yeah, it it is yeah just um, a reflection and realization that um, that there's so much uh, to learn, so much to know, um, which is me. Um, is my long winded way of saying yeah you make perfectly <laughs> perfectly sense um yeah i i know you have um yeah you have a hard stop uh, in in a, in a couple of, in a couple of minutes or in a, in a um so could you do like a rapid fire question thing yeah yeah sure. um because yeah because terrifying pardon, pardon me so this is terrifying Oh, no. no, it's it's not it's not that like it's not like uh, the crossfire on 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 what's that news? Oh, I don't know. I know, like, the, I know the one you mean. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not it's not like that. Just rapid fire, as in like yeah, just uh, just some question that pop into my head. Um, curious. I'm curious about um, Helen in two, ten years. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I am. Um... I don't know. I've got kids who are quite young. So I've got a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old. Maybe that's not quite so young anymore. Maybe that's one <laughs> of the teenager. I should probably stop saying they're young. Um, so in 10 years, um, I've got a bit more freedom back. I mean, I love them. They're amazing. But it, they, it does mean that, you know, I am based in London most of the time. Mm. Uh, and what I would really like to do is get back to spending more time in the places and spaces that I'm supposed to be working with and for. Um, so I'd, li- I'd like that to be the case. Also, I'm Australian and I've been in Europe for 14 years um, and I'm not European. I don't, I don't like, you know, it's not my space. So in, if I'm still here in 10 years, something's gone terribly wrong. Um, so Asia Pacific, Australia, hopefully. Um, and 
uh, and spending more time, you know, I've, I've, done, I've done a bit of international policy work um, over the last sort of 15, 20 years. And I'd, I'd quite like to do less, you know, I'd quite like to be doing a bit more sort of just in one place um, work that lets you get a little bit deeper. Um, and I think, you know, that, that work can be more rewarding. Mm. Well, where, whereabouts in Australia are you from? Down south, Adelaide. Down south, Adelaide. All right. Adelaide, Nairobi, Chiang Mai, or London? Oh. So, Chiang Mai 10 years ago. I've <laughs> Chiang Mai recently. <laughs> Chiang Mai was less than a million, it was about half a million people when I. Mm. Moved there, and I think it's almost getting up to three now. I mean, it's a big city. Um, uh, there's another place outside of Chiang Mai called Chengdao, um, up in up in sort of Mehang Son direction. Um, maybe there. Um, I mean, Chiang Mai is great because of the incredible organisations that are based there and work there. Um, but I think I'd want to be a bit outside of Chiang. Mai. Yeah. So so we we, we could see um, Helen and the farm. In, in Chiang Mai in 10 years, or uh, Chiang Dai. Um, and I, I love Chiang Mai. Um, I've been yeah, proud to the World Conference. We, like, it, was, it was our hub because uh, AIPP was facilitating a lot of the meetings. So um, yeah, like 2012 until 2014, we, we went to like Chiang Mai, like, I don't know, twice or at least three times a year. Mm. Loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, That's wonderful. Um, so here's a trip down memory lane. Mm. AIPP used to be based in Bangkok. And when they moved to Chiang Mai, I uh, was working with the then staff of AIPP to find their first office. Really? Yeah. Oh. They have now, obviously. Uh, the one they, when you were there, did they have the one that Joanne uh, supported the building of? The really big eco-friendly one? Yeah. Like they, 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 um, they just opened up the, that eco-friendly building. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I've never been to the old office before though. And they they now they now have a um, an indigenous hotel. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In Chiang Mai, um, sorry, yeah, shameless plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Ina the Ina hostel, and it's managed by a fellow called Sompon, who is excellent, and it's a wonderful hostel. I keep trying to hold as many meetings as possible there, but I've only succeeded twice. Ah, okay. Well, there's hopefully when everything opens up, you can you can continue to do that. Um, yeah. So, all right. Next one is um, realism or optimism. Optimism, definitely. How so? Because uh, um, because there's um, there's a whole lot of um really really good stuff going on all the time, and we seem to forget about that quite a lot. And I think I don't think um, I don't think optimism means letting go of realism entirely. I think optimism has to be sort of mixed with it. Um, but but it's I think the way our media and our news work um, drives us into a view of negativeness, and it forgets all of the brilliant stuff, all the local small brilliant stuff which is going on all the time. Mm. So I I yeah I tend to optimism. And what um, people, people, when people tend to optimism, there's always a process that they go through. Mm. Um, is there um, 
um, yeah, maybe prophecy is not the right word, uh, but yeah, they have a, um, yeah, because they have to, like when they when there's something happen something happen they go through a thought process. Yeah, maybe is the right word um, to 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 flip it to optimism. Is it? Do you have a um, something along those lines? I don't. I don't know. I think. I think the main piece for me that gets back to optimism is I have a, I, I really have a huge faith in people. I think mm. people are good. Um, I think the vast majority of, if I think of all the people who I've worked with over my entire life, they are all doing good and they're all trying really hard to do good against quite a lot of challenges. Um, and and I think I think that's, I think that for me is the, when something goes wrong or there's a sort of a, a disaster. I think my first thought is, <clears throat> who are the people engaged in this problem, and you know, and what are they doing already, um, rather than what's the great big solution that can come in from the outside. I think that's, I think that's what, I think that's what my process is. I haven't never actually really thought about it, but I think that's what my process is. No, it's it's it, yeah, and it, it's it's interesting question because. Um, yeah, that it is. Um, people would like would love to be optimistic, um, but they just need. Yeah, they like to insp um, seek motiv motivation or inspiration, like to to to, to really um, bounce back. And yeah, I think that's it. The, the the way to to bounce back from from a adversity and to uh, flip your mindset into into optimism. And everyone has their own process. And some I was fascinated by that. Um, and um, yeah, um, I see a lot of books um, behind you. So what is the uh, book you most, most have gifted away? Oh, gosh. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I think there's one recently, which mm -hmm. I which I thought was so good. I've bought, I think, for about seven people so far, and I only read it six months ago. So it's 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 a high uh, accelerating curve. It's a book called um, Dictionary of Lost Words, which is this wonderful book about feminism and and people who work on little things for a long mm -hmm. time and create something big by little actions over a very long period of time. Um, and it's wonderful. It's a really lovely book. Um, so Dictionary of Lost Words is the most recent sort of everyone should read this book um and then there was a there was a set of books that were published by the international alliance back in 2002 maybe called our knowledge for our survival and it was a double it was a, a, a regional set of cases um all indigenous authors and then a national set of cases and i think uh the number of those books which I shuffled around and sent to people and made them read is probably the biggest single set of books um, ever. Out of print now, unfortunately. It's a great book. Oh, shoot. I was about to say, like, we're going to get it on Amazon. Um, um, favorite book? Favorite I book? love books. I love books. I'm, I'm, so I'm going to ask like four or five questions about books now. Do you know what? I don't know my favorite book um, off the top of my head. I'm just looking at the. the, the the publishing house that is most strongly represented in my in my uh, shelves is Igia. 
um, the, you know, the Danish indigenous rights organization. Yeah. So there are more books published by them than by any single other organization. So yeah. they're my favorite publishers. Favorite book? I don't know. I don't know. How do you pick one? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know either. Um, that's, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, I don't know at the moment. My current favorite book is um, uh, the Indigenous Caucus to the Biodiversity Convention published a book last year called Local Biodiversity Outlooks. And I think what? it's amazing. They published a book? Yeah. Have, how, how come I don't... I'm always late to those things. Can I show it to you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I know, I know how to order it and, and where to order it. It's massive. It's massive. It's huge. What? What? Yeah. So that is... 50 different indigenous, 50 different indigenous and community researchers researching their local uh, contributions to biodiversity protection. That's it. Oh, man. Favorite one. Yeah, no, I, I totally if get what. If you really want a copy, we've got a few spare, so we might be able to. I, sh I should get a copy. It's embarrassing. I don't have a copy of, 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 of a process that I'm actually quite, not, not quite, but a, a little bit involved in all right if you would write a book what would it be? what kind of book would it be biography or the only things i've ever really been interested in writing uh, or i've ever really been interested in, in being involved in are, are sort of collections um of many voices um so uh there's only i've only ever actually had my name on the front of one book and it was um Indigenous people's experiences with the World Heritage Convention. Mm. So, you know, not widely read, didn't didn't fly off the shelves, um, but it was it was what I liked, which is some you know fifteen different Indigenous researchers putting forward their stories and then collecting them all together and saying this is of importance and should be listened to. Uh, so if I was going to do any more, I'd do that. I find them quite time consuming though, so I'm not sure I'd do another book um, for a while. Maybe when I retire. In ten years, in, yeah. when, 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 you, when you're in, in Changdai, and yeah, there, there's. If ever there's, there's, I would write a book. It would be, um, no, nah, not ever. I'm actually seriously considering it. Is um, not writing a book, but like a resource book of indigenous representatives, how they like the how, the, the tools they use, in terms of indigenous diplomacies, mm -hmm. um, and advocacy, and you're just like, all right, so and. And by I mean indigenous, I'm also mean like allies like yourself. So you're not like, all right. Um, so when people want, um, yeah, I'm so inspired by Helen. So you flip over to Helen and I'm like, all right, this is what Helen, how she looks at the UN or conservation or whatever. So you can ins be inspired. So it's a resource book that that's, if ever I would write up, because my life is not interesting. So I would never do a, like a biography or whatever. Uh, not wouldn't wouldn't do that but um yeah like a like a like a resource book like a thick book of of all right I, now i want to uh, go through joji carino or i want to go through uh, joanne carling or like so a whole diversity of, of people in there and just like their own yeah their, their record of views or like how they how they do things so that you can basically stand on its shoulders of giants um and because um yeah that is, that is 
um, sorry, this is this is not a, a plug for for uh, for um, a, a book I would potentially uh, write. Um, but I, I, I totally get um, as in like a, a compilation of, of views and people. Um, and I think that I think that's more interesting than, than just one um, uh, one view. Um, all right, Grand. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to interrupt just really quickly because there was a line you used when when you reached out and said, do you want to want to have a conversation? And I said, I don't think I'm going to be a terribly interesting conversation. Um, how about this person? How about that person? And then you said a line which made me think, all right, then I'll give this a shot, which was, um, I said, I'm not a particularly good storyteller. And do you remember what you wrote in response? You said you're Everyone the, has a story. No, no, you're you're the best teller of your own story. Yeah. Was the phrase used. And I just, I thought that was such a, I, 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 it made me think this is, maybe it is worth having a conversation because maybe there is something interesting in that. Um, and and uh, yeah, I just wanted to recognize that because I wouldn't normally do something like this, um, but you, that you're sort of, um, you know, there are there are so many stories out there and maybe it's worth spending, having a, having a conversation about this one. Um, sort of made me think it was worth having a conversation. Yeah, and, and but, but that's why, yeah, question. Um, uh, um, yeah, did you did do you like your? I'm I'm looking at FDS Indigenous Worlds actually right now. It's crazy. You talked about it. I'm I'm just looking at it right now. Um, you uh, your story. Um, I think I already know know the answer to it. Finished or unfinished? Oh, totally unfinished. There's a lot. My kids are only like twelve. Mm. There's a lot. There's a lot going on still. Yeah. Play a big part in your story still, or still. Play a big part in your in your story. Who? Your your kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they have to. They're they're sort of the center of uh, they're sort of the center of everything. Um, and it, it's funny when I when I first had the very first time I had a child. Um, so I was suddenly like having this thing that I was totally responsible for. And I remember thinking at the time, there are so many territories and sites and places where this kid could learn and I haven't actually delivered on any of that you know he still he still goes to school he hasn't he hasn't learned any of this stuff and he hasn't he hasn't had the experience of being uh you know a, a minority who just has to sit and listen and you know all of that stuff all of the stuff that makes the all you know your the stuff you learn as a kid is foundational but it's not really transformative and then there's this patch in your late teenage, early 20s, where your learning can become slightly transformative. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to continue to feel like my children are my project until I get them into their at least 20s. Mm. Yeah. Um, what? Um, for, for, for your kid, uh, for your, um, your teenagers to understand their mom. Um, what where should they travel to definitely uh chiang mai um and i mean the people who i worked with there um are, you know they're still my dearest friends and they you know they they're the reason i do most of what i've done since i worked lived and worked there 
And my grandfather, who was 90, almost 90 at the time, he traveled up to, to Chiang Mai to visit when I was there. And, um, and he, he was sort of brought into this organization. He showed up and everyone's, oh, it's Helen's grandpa. And they sort of enveloped him in, in and then explained what they did and talking to the communities that they worked with. You know, there's just something, it's, it's, it's part of the fabric of my history and my family that was, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's awkward for my kids to go there because they don't speak the language and, you know, it would take a bit for them to be there. Um, but it's, it's core to me and, and it's core, it's also core to what I'd quite like them to be interested in doing. Um, but then there's Australia um, and, the, and the far north of Australia and um, you know, the indigenous protected areas and the territories and the places in Australia are, are you know, they, they're some of the best examples of the way things can be transformed and made better. Um, mm -hmm. So Australia's there too. Um, yeah, Thailand and Australia. They have to and then so, I'll make your own decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's always always fascinating. Um, yeah, like the the where, where would um for for your 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 kids to really understand to experience all right, and you cannot name Chiang Mai, you cannot name Thailand, um, to understand um land rights and indigenous peoples. Where would you send them? Um, I think uh the Chittagong Hill Tracks uh, mm. have a have a hell of a lot to teach people about retaining power and defending defending power and territory. Um, I think the mountains in Kenya and Uganda both well. I think mountains in most places are, are where because it tends to be where people retreat to you know so that it's it's where people need to defend themselves from. Um, but yeah, the mount the mountains in in Kenya, the forest peoples in the mountains in Kenya, the forest peoples in the in the mountains in DRC in Uganda, uh, all of the peoples who live in in the northern parts of Burma, Thailand. Um, sort of the, there's a wonderful there's a wonderful book that was written a long time ago, I think in the 1980s, and it's called Civilization Can't Climb Hills, and mm. it's um, I can't remember who wrote it. It was an Australian researcher, I think. Anyway, its, it's thesis is um, that um, centralised power starts in cities and stretches out from there, and that the last, the last places where it, it, it's, it remained centralised for a really, really long time. And Indigenous peoples and, uh, and community territories and spaces were independent polities all around them. And in Southeast Asia, what that functionally meant was all the river valleys were civilizations, and then all the mountaintops were indigenous peoples and, and, and other communities. And that there was a sort of an, an independence and self-determination and almost a sort of radical anarchy in the spaces beyond civilization. And, and that's the way it was said by people who lived in the valleys it was framed as beyond civilization. But then when you go up the mountains, it's not beyond civilization at all. It's, it's, it's the experience and the practice of a different form of civilization. And I, yeah, I think, so I think um, that was a very roundabout way of saying that my kids need to climb mountains. Mm. Um, 
but it's but it's more than mountains it's the kind of power that sits outside of outside of cities and outside right. of centers all right final question is an easy one um mountain climbing or surfing oh <laughs> so the last time i surfed i broke my foot um, oh. <laughs> so, I'm, so i might be getting told that um it's possible um no it's still surfing so surfing all right helen thank you so much for 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 getting on a podcast really appreciate it and um yeah keep on doing what you're doing um really love um your energy um your work you as a person um yeah the indigenous world really uh, needs people like yourself um so uh, i've been talking about like helen in 10 years um but hopefully it is 10 20 30 40 years that you keep, keep um, um, doing what you do and you keep doing what you love. That's, that's the hope, definitely. Um, thank you for um, asking. It's quite, I, it's quite unusual for me to, um, to not just attempt very much to stay in the background. And it's been an interesting process, um, but it's been, it's been really fun. Um, and, and also I've gone into places in my head where I haven't been for a, a while. Um, so it's quite, it's fun to go back to those places and wow. get those things again. Well, I think it, I see that as a, as a, as a, as a very, um, very big compliment that I taken you to places where, um, yeah, you, you, you don't, you, you don't necessarily, not necessarily, but like, don't, yeah, um, don't, don't go regularly. Um, yeah, but the people that are in the background also deserve a once in a while, a, a spotlight and to, to, to share their story. Everyone has a story and story and yeah, who, who better to tell it than, than you yourself, right? Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, um, you have a meeting. I have a meeting in, in a bit <laughs> in a bit as well. I have a full day scheduled. Um, um, yeah, that's the the perils of COVID, I, I would I would assume. Oh um, um, but maybe um, mm. we will meet in person for a beer at some point in the next 12 months. Oh yeah, are you um, Glasgow? You going? Yes. By the looks of it, um, Glasgow will be the first in-person meeting. It might um, be. Um, Kunming is is technically before it, but it's yeah. much more likely to be blended. So I don't know who will actually show up in person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I heard the special um, special um, secretary general. Quite a difference in mandate. Um, uh, um, I, I, yeah, heard a, a statement that um, that would be um, the, the likely the full, the first full in-person uh, meeting. But then again, we don't know what what the requirements and like vaccine or, or passport, whatever. But we'll see. Um, if you're going, um, and if not, um, I'll try to make a stop over in layover in London, and then. Uh, yeah. we'll, do some fish and chips or what, what, whatever you do, <laughs> whatever you do in London. So, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll let you go now. All right. Bye. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thanks. This is the Go Maluku podcast. 